The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. Hello, welcome to The Sewer Show. Uh, you're listening to The Sewer Show on 855am 3CR Community Radio. Um, we kind of have a special show today, I guess. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about, I guess, the rally that happened on April 4, the Reclaim Australia rally that happened on the 4th of April. Um, and there's also a rally going on right now in the city, if you're around in Flinders Street. Um, it started at 4 o'clock, but I think possibly it's still going. So if you're in the city, check it out, Flinders Street Station. Um, and it's against the closures of Aboriginal communities in Western Australia. Mm, and it's like a follow-up to the really successful rally that happened um, a month ago on our last show that um, we live live played for you all. And um, so, yeah, if you can, get down to that rally. Yep, check it out. And then later on on the show, we're just going to play some um, uh, audio of um, a community accountability forum that was held at Trades Hall um, by Undercurrent and uh, Jenna Williams was speaking from Philly Rise Up, uh, Philly Stand Up, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was just, um, I guess, talking about um, sexual assault and ways uh, community accountability and kind of transformative justice um, approaches to domestic violence and sexual assault in our communities. So, yeah, we'll probably end the show with some of that. I think it's uh, Annalise and Loz from Undercurrent talking a little bit about that stuff. So stay tuned. Um, I'm going to play a song right now. It's an Archie Roach song called Took the Children Away. Stay tuned. Is something worrying you? Need someone to talk to? Having trouble at work or at home? Call WIRE Women's Information on 1300 134 130, Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm. Talk to a woman who cares. It's free and confidential Victoria-wide. You can talk to us about anything. You can also talk to us in your own language through our telephone interpreter service. So call WIRE on 1300 134 or visit wire.org.au. Wire is a 3CR supporter. See so you back on the air here at 3CR. This is the Sewer Show, Squatter and Unwaged Airwaves. And that was Archie Roach with Took the Children Away, a live version of the song. Um, so today on the show, we have, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Reclaim Australia rally that occurred um, last weekend and the counter rally. Also about um, the rally that's occurring right now that started at four o'clock today at Flinders Street Station about the um, closures of Indigenous communities in WA. Um, it's a follow-on rally to the rally that happened a month ago. And um, later on, we're going to be hearing some pre-recorded material from 
a forum that happened at Trades Hall between um, Undercurrent and um, a speaker from Philly Stands Up, and um, so stay tuned for that as well. But firstly, we're going to be talking about the Reclaim Australia rally. Um, one of the things that got quite a bit of media attention was um, some Australian flags being burnt, and um, you know that particularly <laughs> offended all these people that were going there to wave the flag and then abuse people that uh, didn't look what their version of Australia was. But anyway, um, we've got a media release from War. Yeah, so I was just going to um, read out the media release that War, uh, who's War is Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, um, and they were the ones doing the flag burning, I guess. And I just wanted to read out um, the media statement that they released about why they did that. So... On Saturday, Reclaim Australia held rallies across the country. These rallies promoted messages of racism, hatred and oppression. Participants were draped in the Australian flag, were covered in swastika tattoos and carried banners with dehumanising messages. Warriors of the Aboriginal resistance attended the counter-rally and Australia's national flag is a symbol of racism uh, and burnt three Australian flags. War hold no affinity to this flag. Australia's national flag is a symbol of racism, genocide and dispossession. It represents the bloodshed of our ancestors at the hands of the brutal colonisation of this land. The Australian flag represents a long history of oppression that we continue to endure under the colonial system. It is entwined with racism and represents an entire colonial nation built on the deliberate and systematic extermination and destruction of the first peoples of this country. This flag is founded in the belief of terra nullius, the failure to recognise the longest living culture on earth and its continued use delegitimises our existence and is insulting to our people. In more recent times, this flag also represents the malicious and racist treatment of ethnic minorities. The flag represents a white nation, a nation built by, by white people for white people. Members of War didn't just burn the Australian fl flag. We set fire to an expression of Australian racism in an act of anti-colonial resistance. Burning the Australian flag is an act of defiance against the colonial state, a symbolic gesture of our continual fight for freedom and a message that is hoped to reverberate outside of the monopolised media within this country. Our ultimate goal is to end the colonial control of our lands and lives and to restore our tribal sovereignty. We want freedom and independence and we will continue to fight to rid our people and our communities of the interfering and oppressive hands of the colonial Australian state. We call on Australian government. To, we call on the Australian government to cease violent domination of Aboriginal lives, and immediately stop all destruction of Aboriginal land and culture across this continent. Mm. Yeah. So that's the media release, and I just wanted to read it out because I think it's a good explanation about the symbolism of, of, like you know, what what the Australian flag actually represents to a lot of people. Um, and also. Considering it's our war, the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance who burnt the flag, the idea of reclaiming Australia, it's very much the people doing the reclaiming aren't doing it in in their name of or for themselves as Indigenous people. Yeah. It's as um, people who identify as often as um, Christians and their concerns are, are, are religious-based rather than, say, yeah. how Indigenous people have been treated. It's also like considering um, photos I'd seen of, say, the Brisbane rally and maybe of some of the other rallies, some of the Reclaim Australia protesters, one or two had Indigenous flags. Yeah. Um, obvious because they're trying to say, hey, we're not racist, we're carrying an Indigenous flag. Whereas here in Melbourne, 
I guess that was pretty much put in its place by the um, the burning of the flags by the, by war. Yeah, I mean there was a few things at that rally that I really like. Uh, it just it w- it's so shocking to me that that a lot of the um, reclaimers had had posters, and you know that anti-Muslim and anti-Islam and a lot of the their posters were saying that they wanted to reclaim gender equality and like talking about how um, you know Islam is a, is oppressive to women and all this sort of thing yet the whole time we were at the rally <laughs> they were constantly shouting like sexist kind of um, slogans and calling us all bitches and sluts and I, d- I don't know it just seems a bit ridiculous to me like and hypocritical there was mm. also on on the facebook page the next day someone had written um in regards to the flag burning that the punishment for burning the australian flag should be uh death by gang rape so for a group of people that are so concerned about the liberation of women worldwide i don't know i just i, I it seems like a bit hypocritical <laughs> to me yeah totally especially if you have a look at the speakers like they very much were trying to say, hey, we're not racist. Um, they were saying anyone that comes with like any sort of racist material will be turned away from the rally and told to leave. Yeah, which the is The people not that came true. with the swastikas mm. on their head, the ones who were really the, mm. often seemed to be really aggressive and violent, according, like going by the media. Yeah. They weren't told to leave by Reclaim Australia organisers. No. But um, I guess even more on that level, um, even more than just that, the people that had speak in Melbourne, Danny Nalia, who is yeah. incredibly active in anti-abortion movements, w- somehow is a voice for women against yeah. Islamic oppression, yeah. or um, Pauline Hanson in Brisbane, who just in the in the 90s was making claims that Australia was in danger of being swamped by Asians, mm. was somehow representing an anti-racist opposition to um, uh, Islamic terrorism. Yeah. That, like... Obviously, the people that they chose to speak, you know, even if you were to say that they can't control who turns up, the people they invited to speak very much were framing the version of Australia that they wanted to reclaim. And that is obviously, as the war statement said, like um, it was an Australia that has um, that racist history and that continuing racism and the the same misogynist attitudes towards women that... um, right-wing Christianity has had for a long time that people like Danny Nalia represent and that smaller parties in Australia that are trying to grow are representing and um, it's completely hypocritical. It is. The other thing I wanted to say about that was um, just about how the government didn't really condemn the Australia, the Reclaim Australia rally um, and I know a lot of Muslims and Muslim representatives were really angered by that because... Um, you know, the Australian government is constantly forcing Muslims to prove their loyalty to Australia or to prove how um, moderate, whatever that means, moderate, <laughs> how, how moderate they are, you know, and, and constantly tali- telling them that they have to distance themselves from fundamentalism and that kind of thing. And we just witnessed pretty much a whole bunch of neo-Nazis, you know, being allowed to beat up whoever they wanted um, on the streets of Melbourne and I feel like if we are to consider ourselves a democracy, which is what we do, you know, we should be um, not not allow, allowing fascist kind of statements to freely be, you know, 
why isn't the Australian government distancing themselves from fascism? They don't seem to do that, you know. It's just, yeah. And very much like the same thing as in the media. When there were the protests in Sydney against um, the, I believe it was um, one of the cartoons, like Muhammad cartoons last year sometime, mm. there was a lot of media about a child holding a sign that said behead those who insult the prophet or being at a rally where those signs were being held. That and that in the media that was like massive and i mean it's pretty confronting but mm. then in melbourne the i saw a photo online on the herald sun's website that had a picture of a guy that you could see the swastikas on the back of his head mm. um the ss symbol like him proudly um proclaiming that he was anglo-saxon germanic and like other sort of racist imagery and the caption that they had was a reclaiming australia supporter no mention in the article about the swastikas, no mention in the caption about how this was really outrageous. You mm. know, you know, and these and these are yeah. fascist neo-Nazis that have alliances with like legitimate political parties now in this country, like mm. Rise Up Australia and, you know, it's terrifying. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I think we should um, maybe go to a cart and a song and take a break and we'll come back after this. Violence can destroy family. I decided one day that I could not stand having my children witnessing more of the physical, verbal and emotional abuse. While I was facing issues of family violence, I heard about a service available to assist people in my situation called InTouch. I called InTouch and spoke with someone in my language. InTouch gave me the support I needed. Thanks to the people at InTouch, I've been able to rebuild a better life for my family. If you need advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion in your language by calling 1-800-755-988 or search InTouch Multicultural Centre online. InTouch, brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. Hi, you're back on the air. You're listening to 3CR Radio, um, 8.55am. Uh and we are The Sewer Show, The Squatter and Unwaged Worker Airwaves. Um, today we've been talking a little bit about uh, the Reclaim Australia rally that occurred on Saturday. And now we wanted to talk a little bit about the rally that's happening now um, in the city at Flinders Street Station. Um, head on down there if, you've, if you're around. Um, and, and this is a rally that is against the forced closures of Aboriginal communities in Western Australia. Um, yeah. And we have a um, media release by War, who are the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, so the same group that we uh, mentioned the media release and read out the media release before about the burning of the flags at the um, Reclaim Australia rally. Um, so here is the media release. Today, Melbourne will be shut down by thousands of people expressing their outrage at federal and state government's plans to forcibly close Aboriginal communities. Warriors of the Aboriginal resistance are committed to resisting government attacks on our people, our culture and our land. We will never cease until we are guaranteed Aboriginal social and political independence and rid ourselves of the oppressive hand of government. The forced closure of Aboriginal communities is an affront against every Aboriginal person living on this continent. For those living in the communities designed as designated, sorry, as unsustainable. The forced closures represent a genocidal attack on culture and connection to a land that constitutes an unambiguous breach of fundamental human rights and basic notions of human decencies. 
for every other self-respecting Aboriginal person, the forced closures represent the disrespect and disregard that governments have for Aboriginal people. The forced closures reinforce the message that Aboriginal people cannot have freedom on this continent until we have self-government. Rallies against forced closures have been held across the country, bringing countless cities to a standstill, and yet the government and mainstream media continue to ignore the message. War will not let this diminish our resolve. War will continue to conduct escalating actions until the government is forced to recognise the destruction it is causing to Aboriginal people on this continent and recognise its incompetence to govern Aboriginal peoples. War's ultimate goal is to end the colonial control of our lands and rights and to restore our tribal sovereignty. We call on the Australian government to cease violent domination of Aboriginal lives and immediately stop all destruction of Aboriginal people, land and culture across this continent. Today's rally will be an expression of our disgust with government and a statement of our continuing sovereignty. Um, and that's the statement. Yeah, so that was the media release um, released by uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance today about um, why they're protesting in the city today at Flinders Street Station. If you're around, check it out. Um, yeah, I guess. And um, yeah, that rally, as we mentioned earlier, is a follow-on to the rally that happened a month ago, um, which was a pretty amazing turnout um, considering how shortly organised it had been. And um, so, yeah, get they along. And they actually have all been really well turned out, actually. And I feel like the momentum about this issue is really, um, yeah, increasing more mm. and more. So, yes, please support <laughs> our worries of the Aboriginal resistance. Yeah, and especially yeah. in a week where we've seen a whole bunch of people trying to reclaim Australia, reclaim Australia, ex continuing that exclusion of Indigenous people. Mm. You know, get down and support people, you, you know. You can't really reclaim something that was never yours in the first place. Totally. So I'll play a cart and then we'll come back and talk a bit about Undercurrent. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law. 6pm Tuesdays. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to The Sewer Show, the squatter and unwaged worker airwaves on Radio 3CR, uh, 855 AM. And um, live streaming through the website. Mm -hmm. Check it out. Um, so I guess what we're going to do now is just play something that we pre-recorded a few weeks ago. Um, it's It was a forum held by a panel and a forum held by uh, Undercurrent, which is a organisation that um, uh, educates... I guess high school students, university students about how to uh, have healthy relationships and um, I guess educate um, teenagers about sexual assault, consent, domestic violence, this kind of thing. Um, and Undercurrent put that on at Trades Hall with um, uh, Jenna from Philly Stand Up, who's another group in the States that have also been kind of um, 
trying to deal with sexual assault in a, uh, I guess, within communities in terms of community accountability, transformative justice, these kind of ideas. Um, and I just wanted to play some recordings um, uh, of that so that people kind of get an idea about who Undercurrent is and uh, what they're trying to achieve. So I'll leave you now with um, a talk by Annalise from Undercurrent, just kind of explaining what Undercurrent is and the ideas of transformative justice and stuff. So stay tuned. Um, so I'd like to talk for a few minutes to contextualise why we're interested in community accountability, transformative justice and prison abolition. And I guess it's really important for me because we all suffer from gender violence and we too often perpetuate unacknowledged power systems, unhealthy hierarchies and form relationships based on these. Capitalism certainly doesn't teach us how to communicate in ways which are respectful, loving, and where we're accountable to each other. So there is, in saying that, there is a certain amount of assumed knowledge tonight, but I will run through briefly some of the concepts that we're talking about, but I won't go into depth with these. So tonight, some of us will talk about the prison industrial complex, and that's a term used to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry. They use surveillance, policing and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social and political problems. Um, we're interested in how issues of sexual assault and domestic violence intersect with broader um, economic, social and political issues. For instance, the high reoffending rates for those who've been to prison for sexual assault or domestic violence all the trauma that survivors experience through going through um, police and court processes. So in our work in Undercurrent, we have a prison abolition framework, which means eliminating imprisonment, policing and surveillance and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. And I guess because of the ways that the prison industrial complex works, it's quite hard to imagine um, what abolition could look like. And abolition is not just about getting rid of prisons, it's also about undoing the societal norms that we all live under, exploitative economic, social and political systems and ideologies which the prison industrial complex feeds on to maintain oppression and inequality. So as abolitionists, we believe that we need to build alternative models that represent how we want to live in the future and that we need to develop practical strategies that lead us to believe that things can be different. So one of the practical strategies that we'll talk about tonight is community accountability. And I'm just going to define that a little bit. Um, I don't want to sound patronizing to people that already know what it is, but I'm just gonna take it from Insight, which is the feminists of color against violence who do amazingly crazy awesome work in North America. So they define community accountability as providing support and safety to community members who were violently targeted that respects their self-determination, committing to ongoing development to transform political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence, developing sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behavior creating a process for them to account for their actions and transform their behavior, 
creating and affirming values and practices that resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support and accountability. Um, another framework that we believe in um, as undercurrent is transformative justice. And I'll use the Generation 5 um, definition for that. So transformative justice is a liberatory approach to violence which seeks safety and accountability without relying on alienation, punishment or state or systemic violence including incarceration or policing. So they define three core beliefs. Individual justice and collective liberation are equally important, mutually supportive and fundamentally intertwined and the achievement of one of these is impossible without the achievement of the other. The conditions that allow violence to occur must be transformed in order to achieve justice in individual instances of violence. Therefore, transformative justice is both a liberating politic and an approach for securing justice. State and systemic responses to violence, including the criminal legal system and child welfare agencies, not only fail to advance individual and collective justice, but also condone and per perpetuate cycles of violence. So transformative justice seeks to provide people who experience violence with immediate safety and long-term healing, while holding people who commit violence accountable within and by their communities. This accountability includes stopping immediate abuse making a commitment to not engage in future abuse and offering reparations for past abuse. Such accountability requires ongoing support and transformative healing for people who sexually abuse. So prior to Undercurrent, um, and for those of you that don't know what Undercurrent is, we're a collective who run our violence prevention programs in high schools, so from Year 7 to Year 12. Um, mainly to do with domestic violence and sexual assault, but we talk a lot about gender um, as well. So prior to Undercurrent, some of us were involved in a community accountability collective called A World Without Sexual Assault. Um, and what led to this was a number of things, including politicisation on a wide range of issues, including Indigenous solidarity and struggle, anti-capitalist struggle, struggle, prisoner support, and working against detention of migrants and refugees. We were also involved in discussing political ideas, including the way the social organization of societies and economic and political systems under which we live socialize us in particular ways. As a result, our views on gendered oppression and gender-based violence centered on a belief that people can unlearn patterns of behavior and control and learn to act in respectful ways. We also came to believe that gender-based violence was the result of broader social and economic systems linked to capitalism and the control of the state. And we believed to that to end gender-based violence, we need to transform the social organization of society and find new ways to be and relate to each other. Being involved with other political projects, we saw the impacts of the police the prison industrial complex and the criminal legal system on communities, particularly marginalized communities and communities of color. So it seemed pretty hypocritical to be against the legal system in some aspects of life and then support the use of prisons in relation to gender-based violence. 
We believe that each issue we are involved in is connected to all others and transformative justice is a recognition of this and a belief that if we wish to transform one as aspect of society, we must transform all aspects. <laughs> so as I said before, there is a long list of disclaimers. And I guess it's true because we are all kind of sitting on edge with this stuff because it is a bit personal and it has impacted all of our lives in this room in big ways. Um, and yeah, we're all really committed to working on this stuff and a little in fear of the repercussions. But we are really hoping that we can start to build better community accountability strategies in Melbourne. Well, welcome back. You're listening to The Sewer Show on 855 AM 3CR Community Radio. Um, and you just heard a short talk by Annalise from Undercurrent, uh, talking a little bit about, I guess, prison abolition, transformative justice, and um, uh, in regards to sexual assault and domestic violence in our communities. Um, it was a panel that was held a few weeks ago at Trades Hall. Um, and now we'll play the second part of that panel introduction um, and this will be a talk by um, Lauren Caulfield who's also part of Undercurrent. A mild terror of microphones. Take them in beta blocker. Um, so um, I'm up to I'm kind of up first with, I guess, the panel component of tonight um, to frame up some of the concepts and some of the local questions and challenges before closer before um, Jenna, Arnie and Rodney drill down into some of the more specific details of Collective's work. Um, to do this, I'll also be speaking across some research that I did last year out of Undercurrent with a Churchill Fellowship, um, reflecting collaboratively on some of the lessons and challenges um, in our work around here, and then visiting some long-running community accountability um, projects and groups, including Silly Stands Up in North America, um, to see other approaches to working with some of those challenges and more generally. Um, and I have some things written down, really just to make sure that I get through it all in 13 and a half minutes or less, because it's a lot of people's different voices. Um, I've also got a couple of kind of caveats or disclaimers at the beginning, but as something um, of an intro point, I wanted to say that I'm actually quite wary of the framing of community accountability or transformative justice as an alternative to the criminal legal system, because I think this assumes an established capacity to respond um, to incidences of violence right now, when the reality is often really humbling when we try to do it. Um, also, I think it risks creating a dynamic where survivors can feel pressured to demonstrate their kind of radical politics by taking up those options or refusing to call the cops. Um, and also potentially builds um, or can build a false idea that we can somehow address or mitigate all of the harms of the prison industrial complex through community accountability alone, um, which obviously it can't achieve as one tactic. Um, I also wanted to say that um, while we often think about um, the person doing harm as the one to be accountable for violence, community accountability also means um, taking collective responsibility for this by becoming more knowledgeable, skillful and willing to intervene in violence when it occurs um, and to act to create the conditions that prevent it from occurring in the first place. And when we consider community accountability as a collective skill in this way, then the individual work of, of facilitated behavioural change programs is really just one tactic. It's not all of the work. 
Um, and thirdly, I wanted to note that while this area of work is a really vital intersection, and I'd argue it's also a really deeply feminist intersection, and we absolutely need analysis and strategies that address both gender, interpersonal, like intimate partner, and state violence, it's not always a really easy um, alliance between feminist anti-violence work and, and prison abolitionism. So the former's often um, built relationships with or, or um, supported the roles of police and prisons without sufficient critique of their inherent violence or the harms that they entail and the way that building relationships with them actually serves to enshrine and legitimise their role. Um, but the latter, so prison abolitionism, has in turn sometimes failed to answer the questions about what real um, opportunities and mechanisms exist for the safety of survivors right now, how those will be prioritised. Um, so with that in mind, this work is it's necessary, it's deeply hopeful and it's very much still underway. Um, and like anything that straddles complexity, it's subject to a lot of critique, not least from the people um, engaging in it. Um, so of course this work is really deeply col collaborative and before heading off last year I put out a survey and did a bunch of interviews including with a number of people who are in this room, really clever people, um, and gathered a whole lot of commentary um, looking to try and draw out some of the thematic questions and challenges in the work here and also to see if other people's thoughts mirrored some of the challenges that I'd hit into and we'd hit into in the work. Um, I also asked about successes, of which there were many, but... Um, <laughs> but um, because tonight's really focused on picking Jenna's brains and um, also trying to take this work forward, I'm pretty focused on talking about the challenges, so don't assume that there weren't great successes in response as well. Um, so from those discussions, some core themes really quickly emerged in conversations about questions that we have locally. So they ranged from things like questions around um, how to manage burnout, fatigue and interpersonal dynamics in collectives and projects. So noting that this, um, this work is really emotionally laden and charged work, it's often being done without the resources and structures of agencies and it's happening in a really up close and personal way in our immediate communities. Um, probably the most striking theme of a lot of those discussions was the question of who is the community? So how do we define this if we're communities who are bound by politics or friendship or identity rather than geography or economic necessity or, or, or one of those factors? And how do we create conditions where the community is able to hold together in the really challenging circumstances of anti-violence work or responding to crisis points? Um, what about the challenges um, in interaction between accountability projects and the communities in which they're situated? So like critique, um, pushback and criticism, sometimes um, overt kind of conflict between different approaches. So conflict between the sort of binary guilt-innocence approach that the criminal legal system takes versus a transformative justice framework and the misunderstandings that happen around that. And also the role of gossip and the way that this can in interact with and really undo community interventions and how we work with that. Um, questions around how we avoid replicating systems of oppression in our interventions, both when it comes to avoiding replicating the punitive practices of the prison industrial complex in the work that we do, but also in who's actually made responsible for doing this work. So one organiser that I spoke with said, um, a major ongoing challenge is women putting far too much energy into rehabilitating dudes who demonstrate no interest in being allies or being sorry. So in both direction, looking at those systems of oppression. Um, what about the interface with formal services or agencies? Um, can we do community accountability work in interaction with services? What if we don't have all the skills ourselves or we hit a limit um, to our capacity? And what about 
Um, what about the interface with poli or police or court processes if these are already in train? Like, is there any role for community accountability around that? And what role do the survivors' wishes play? So should all interventions be structured around these or should these be weighed against other factors? And then how do we ensure survivor-led ethics in that? Um, and finally, um, what options are there if the person called out doesn't acknowledge the harm or violence or want to be accountable? What about if their friends collude? Um, and this is when people that I spoke to really talked about interventions often coming down to trying to create a safe space um, for survivors and then trying to exclude people who've done harm from those spaces, which is often a really uncomfortable and controversial tactic in itself, but it's what those interventions became reduced to. So one, um, one organiser said, I don't think that people necessarily want to condone violence, but they don't want to believe that their friends are perpetrating. It's easy to believe that someone is a crazy bitch making things up because that's the social stereotype than it is to believe that your friend's a perpetrator. It's easy to believe that what they have done isn't bad enough to warrant a response. Um, and lastly, the question of how we approach evaluating this work or having a look at it to see if it's working. Um, obviously these questions are really broad reaching, it's not all of the questions and they're ongoing and we're not gonna resolve all of them tonight. Um, upon taking those questions kind of overseas and getting to North America, I was both heartened and also kind of alarmed to see that a whole lot of them were mirrored in the work there, but I was relieved that it means that we're not just doing it wrong. Um, and over a long time, some of the um, projects and collectives there have worked out some useful and, and pretty different ways of working to meet some of those challenges. So the work there covered a lot of terrain related to our challenges, including some of the thinking on managing risk in community interventions, which I reckon is very relevant to the larger context of the discussion around gender violence. You know, when we know that a woman a week is killed in the context of intimate partner violence in Australia in 2015, um, you know, this year that figure's already doubled. And then what that means for how we approach managing risk in our work. And also considering um, the nature of the pressure to craft responses in high risk situations and what that means for agencies who are being pushed into ever closer interactions with police and the criminal legal system, especially around information sharing. Um, but I wanted to focus just um, on two quick areas tonight before I wrap up and hand over. Um, the first one, how we might work to build accountable communities to build those conditions, and secondly, how we approach evaluation. Um, these are also two of the core challenges that we're focusing on in Undercurrent at the moment as we try to kind of reimagine um, and re-envisage our own approach and keep building local work. So the first one, how do we build capacity? Um, I sat and watched a panel discussion in Seattle where Norma Sinclair, an amazing activist, spoke about her, um, her experience over 15 years watching work evolve there. And she said, I think a lot of the time, the way that people start engaging with community accountability is there's an incident and we're trying to figure out what to do. And there's this really rad approach that we've heard about and we end up trying something, burning out. And then there's another phase and another phase of people kind of going through that same arc. And I remember a few years ago, someone saying, what would it be like if we knew that there was going to be an incident of harm in our community in three to five years? What would we do now to be ready for that? Um, rather than just leaping into action because something's happening right now, which is coming out of a well-intentioned impulse to help, but often not having laid that groundwork. And those words really resonated and mirrored a lot of what um, we've talked about here. Many of the tricky dynamics around community capacity here also relate to the lack of shared understandings about violence and safety and agreements on the nature and the purpose of interventions that we're trying to do. Um, the pervasiveness of victim blaming dynamics and confused positions on consent, entitlement, what actually constitutes violence are really striking, even in so-called progressive, you know, activist punk, whatever communities. Um, so the question is, so what can we do to build our capacity? Well, there's 
there's no magic fix answer. And also one of the challenges is obviously that violence doesn't stop while we're pausing to build our capacity. Um, but we absolutely need to work to build this shared analysis of violence and to deepen our own understandings um, and our own personal practices rather than assuming that this is something that we just have because we're radical. Um, and to embed and develop this in our communities in an ongoing way, so not just in response to crisis points. Um, at Undercurrent at the moment, we're trying to do that in a couple of ways. So we're drawing on the work done by some groups like Project NIA and Philly Stands Up and others, and taking ourselves through a self-education program and going through as, much of a re as many resources and a discussion group as we try to build um, that work. And and also crea intentionally creating spaces for community dialogue and storytelling. So events like tonight as a first discussion, but building towards a kind of larger program of events. So we're building towards a community accountability conference or action camp, and there's a contact list at the back of the room um, that we'd love to kind of collaborate with people on pulling that together. Um, we're also working deliberately on crafting self-accountability as a building block for community accountability. So we're taking ourselves at the moment scared of the microphone. We're, um, we're self-facilitating ourselves through the Northwest Network's um, Relationship Skills Program with a view to running that publicly later this year. And that's focused on self-accountability as a skill, how we negotiate consent and boundaries in relationships and how we make agreements um, with each other in close friendships and relationships about how we'll be accountable and how we might respond in advance of crisis points. Um, and secondly, the matter of evaluation or how we examine the effectiveness of this work. I've noticed that in reflecting on this, we often critique ourselves against kind of an imagined or utopian future or the perfect outcome, right? Where um, the survivors feel overwhelmingly supported, the person who's caused harm has taken responsibility and been through a process of reflection and meaningful behavioral change. You know, and the ripple effects through the community are only those that are positive and movement building. But in reality, it's heaps more com complicated than that. So more realistic then is probably not to um, analyze this work against that utopian future, but against the other existing alternatives, so those offered by agencies in the criminal legal system, which are often themselves desperately flawed. Um, this work is nuanced and difficult to capture, and many of the same challenges that face us in trying to track it also face work like men's behavioral change program work. So how do we gather experiential information, not just statistics? And also, how do we capture the interplay of the work? So if, you know, if an intervention happens and a substantial behavioural change isn't, uh, doesn't, um, doesn't occur, but the intervention assists the survivor to feel really well supported, to leave a relationship safely, is that a success? You know, how do we measure that and how do we look at that kind of interaction? Um, thinking critically about evaluation obviously doesn't mean that we don't want to monitor the work, but what are the useful yardsticks to do it? So that's things like giving ourselves articulated principles and ethics to track against, um, structuring processes to work collaboratively for confidential feedback as we go, and taking a harm reduction perspective, where at the very least we hope to mitigate the impact of the harm that's occurred and prevent it from happening again. Um, Philly stands up, I'm just coming to the end, but Philly stands up have written a little bit um, about this. I'm gonna quote you as you're sitting there, so maybe it'll be awkward. But um, they say, so once we became focused on success, we tended to pay less attention to the patterns of abusive behaviour that this person still needed to work through. We found ourselves working in ways that we associate with the non-profit industrial complex, looking for easy, marketable victories with the goal of generating statistics and glossing over contradictions and inconsistencies that might call our work into question. So that's the kind of thing that obviously we want to avoid. And the central question is, what are we evaluating for? And one of the ways that the unfunded nature of this work is also a strength 
is that it doesn't need to be dressed up in that way to be sold to funders. So the purpose should always be to stay true to embedded ethics and to reflect with a view to, to keep improving the work. Um, the dynamics and lived experiences of violence are complex, as is responding to them in our immediate communities, and there's no such thing as easy answers. But given all of the complexity, we think we should still do community accountability work. And we think this because we need to, because intimate partner and sexual violence is so prevalent that it demands a, a response from every angle, because we know that we most often turn to family, friends and community when experiencing violence, and because people experiencing violence or when we experience violence, we often need to or choose to remain in our relationships or in our communities. And in turn, those locations that are up close often have a very nuanced view of the violence and an investment in the safety of people involved and are possibly capable of envisaging some really creative responses. We think we need to do it because for many reasons, often people don't want to contact the police or interact with the criminal legal system, or these are not sites of safety, and insisting that they are is really problematic. Um, and because the strong focus on criminalising gender violence, violence against women, intimate partner violence, tougher sentencing, and, and things like you know zero tolerance for family violence campaigns, are not resulting in a reduction of violence. And we need to challenge this as an overarching strategy to tackle violence and push on that in the kind of world at large. Um, and finally, we need to do it because it means that we take responsibility for um, individual and collective action to create safer communities, rather than assuming that this is the work of outside agencies or should be outsourced to services or systems, particularly those that are themselves inherently violent. Thanks. See you back in there here at um, 3CR. This is the Sewer Show. We're practically out of time. Coming up next is Mafalda, so stay tuned for that. Um, but we today have been talking about the um, Reclaim Australia rally that happened last Saturday, uh, a little bit about the rally today, and you've just been listening to some recordings from a, a forum that was put on by Undercurrent a few weeks ago um, about responding to sexual violence um, prison abolition and um, community accountability and that kind of thing. But anyway, Mafalda is up next. Stay tuned for that and we'll see, we'll speak to you again in a month.